Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. My name is Ian Stasikevich, and I'm a contributing writer for American Cinematographer magazine. Every once in a while, we look back at a film that didn't see print coverage when it was first released. Photographed by Yost Ficano ASC, 1987's Robocop is one of those films. I interviewed Mr. Vacano via Skype from his home in Munich. I wanted to talk about the film's gritty, futuristic look, and the role it played in the story of slain police officer Alex Murphy's resurrection as the future of law enforcement. Yost, I'm really thrilled to be speaking with you about Robocop. The movie made a huge impression on me as a kid. It was violent and funny and scary and serious and sometimes all in the same moment. And I think it still has that effect even today. Yeah, that's that, that's great. Yeah, because it's a long time ago. I think it's 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 almost almost thirty years. So, <laughs> but still, you know, I I I have not seen the the remake of Robocop. I have not seen it yet because it it, it didn't come out here in Germany. But I looked at at my old Robocop yesterday, and and I must say it's. Still, uh, it holds up. I think it holds up. You know, it could be a film having been made uh, a few years ago and not not some decades ago. It still feels very modern. I mean, technically, of course. I mean, now uh, now nowadays, uh, you know, there was no uh, uh, motion control and things. There was nothing available like that. So it was a little bit handmade or all all the effects. But but I think still it's a mixture of realism and, uh, and and fantasy. And it's a little bit of fairy tale, of course, you know, and uh, as you may know, Paul Verhoeven is a, he is not re- religious himself at all, but he is a fa- fan of whatever uh, is known about Jesus. And so sometimes you can see this in the film, you know, when Robo walks over the water and things like that at the end of the film. So, yeah, anyway. <laughs> it's very layered and thematic in that sense. It's not just about a robot cop or a man in a suit. Uh, you know, the danger from the very beginning uh, to avoid this, to avoid to have a man in a suit and everybody starts laughing about a man in a suit. Uh, just, you know, the idea how can we make this robo a real person? It's not a person, but uh, I mean, it's a real mind or something like that. I think this is a very, was a very the great the great idea. But there are two good ideas on this. The first thing is don't show Robocop too early. So whatever we see from a Robocop, it starts with you know when in this in the lab with the, the funny technicians he gets assembled and you you only see what what you see from Robocop is his vision is is his uh, you know distorted by these sort of TV lines with superimposed commands what he gets and all of, all of that stuff so you get a feeling of of this figure Robocop what he is about without seeing him for some time. And, and finally, when you start seeing him, it's, I think the first time it's in the police precinct. Then we see him only from the back, or we see him through a glass frame distorted in a certain way. But we know already who he is, who the inner part of Robocop is. That's a great reveal in the way it builds anticipation. Yeah, and also it, it makes Robo uh, believable in a, in, a, in a certain way, because you you know already 
it's a technical structure. It's a, but you know already there is a certain arrest of his of his old mind of the policeman sort of. So you know. In what ways were you, as the cinematographer, able to support the believability of this character? Yeah, I think I supported it by not following the the comic book style. I would say I followed the comic book style in certain moments when it was necessary, but it's a comic book style script. And it's always uh, also uh, staged sometimes uh, in a very funny way. So I tried myself to keep it as realistic as possible because, you know, the audience should believe in what they are seeing. It's not a, a, a funny uh, story, uh, uh, you, you know, where you, you are dis- distracted or you have a certain distance to it as, as the audience. The audience should still be part of, of, uh, of the scenery, part of the scenes and part of, part of the action. So it's, I think it's a danger uh, if, if everything gets too much stylized, then the, the audience will not follow anymore. Uh, also, you know, uh, working with a handheld camera, you know, it's a, the same camera system, this gyro-stabilized system, what I used uh, extensively on Das Boot, you know, you know that, no? I know about that shot. It's the one where the camera goes from one end of the boat all the way to the other in one continuous take through this really cramped, claustrophobic space. I like very much handheld shooting. I like it very much because... Uh, the audience should have the feeling of being part of the scene. So whatever is very technically, let's say, is oh, it's, it's wonderful cranes and, and, and dollies and, and all of that stuff, um, I think it it's doesn't pull the audience in the story so much. I have the feeling when the audience should be part of the scene, like they are walking with a Robocop through the city or something, then... My feeling is it's better to have a human touch on the on the movements of the camera instead of being technically perfect and just floating wonderfully, whatever. But a handheld camera could be very annoying if it just shakes around. And so it's a little bit you have a, a sense of a human move of, of of a human being behind the camera of a human like movement, but it's not distracting the audience. Uh, that's why I developed this camera system myself uh, a long 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 ago. Uh, so this handheld possibilities really to adapt to uh, to whatever happens in front of the camera with the camera without just distracting uh, the audience of course that means also that i have uh, operated this camera myself because it's a very unique thing so were you using the same stabilized camera as the one in das boot or was it an improved version it was the same it was the same one there was the, just one there was just one existing because I, I, I built it myself, that's why. Was there a method to choosing the moments where you went handheld or used a crane or a dolly? Yeah, I would say in, in the boardroom it was more because it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's a little bit this comic book style. I, I mean, how the, the way the actors were acting, this was very, this was very stylistic. And of course, you know, when this Ed 209, this big machinery came in, uh, this, so that, I think in the ballroom, it was more or less shot from a dolly. Uh, and the, the, the handheld, uh, shooting was more, uh, part of, of the, of the Robocop scenes. 
but but it's just very general. It, it might not be correct, you know, in, retro, in retrospective. In terms of style, how important was composition? And uh, is there a difference between uh, the stylized composition and uh, the realistic compositions? No, it's, I think it's, it, it was stylized when it needed to be stylized, and it was realistic when it needed to be realistic. Like the boardroom, for my feeling, was that this was a very stylized scene. It starts with this huge boardroom table, the way, uh, you know, the, the actors were grouped there. And the, then the way uh, when this Ed 209 came in and, and, and the guy was shot down, uh, you know, this, this was a very stylish scene with not so much movement. So I shot it in a stylish way because I had the feeling this is, you know, superior to, to everything else. This is where the, the, uh, the basics start, the, the, the confrontation of, uh, of, of, of the, of the two guys, you know, one with the Ed 209 and the, and, and Bob, the other one, uh, uh with, with, with Robocop. So this was a little bit where it starts, the whole thing starts. And, and the more we, we, we follow Robocop, the more realistic I, I shot it, lighting wise and, uh, composition wise and movement, movement wise also, because, uh, the Robocop had, to, had to become his own life. That was, you know, it needs to be realistic because it's a, it's in fact, it's, it's an actor in a rubber suit, but you should show him as a human being. And of course, then you have to, you have to be realistic to get the feeling of, of what this human being is and what he thinks and what his feelings are. Was making a Hollywood film any different than making uh, films in the Netherlands? This was, in fact, my third film which I made with Paul Verhoeven. The first two were uh, were shot in, in Holland or in, in Europe, like Soldier of Orange. And this was the first film we did together um, in, in, the, in, in the United States. And, you know, we, we followed up with, with many, many more films together. But that, that was the first one. And I think what's also interesting, uh, it was a film made by people just coming from Europe. We were not Americans. Paul Verhoeven is he's European. It was his first film in Hollywood. It was my second film. I did uh, 52 Pickup with uh, John Frankenheimer before. That was my first film when I came over. And, and right after that, I, I, I made uh, I made Robocop, and also we had a we had a sort of a British uh, producer. So there was a lot of uh, European influence, and I think that also you can you can feel in that film. It's it's not a it's not a Hollywood film. A Soldier of Orange was uh, very naturally lit and photographed, being uh, a more serious and, and dramatic period piece. And I think it's interesting that you used the same approach. To Robocop. You, you, you see, it's the same people who, who made these two films. And I, I would say it's a way of cinematic uh, language or something you, you, you can talk to it. No? That's, Is this something that you would characterize as your style? A, a, little, a little bit, that's possible. I mean, I, I always say it's, it's uh, mo- motion pictures. It's pictures, but they are moving motion pictures. So, so the motion of the picture, the movement of the pictures, it's always very important for me. That's why at that time, uh, it, it was 
very, very uh, many, 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 many movements in the film, and there were just a, a few static shots. So it was moving, moving. So that's a little bit uh, my my approach to get uh, to get motion, to get movement in the film. So to get it also, do you know, to get it forward, to run forward, not not to stay in the static shots and things like that. But I mean, this is this is very. This, I would say it's very personal, and you you can, and I'm sure. Uh, you can find it in, in all in most of my films. If you really study the film's language, it's remarkable how the lighting and the photography never get in the way of the action uh, or the drama or the fantasy. Yeah, but even uh, I mean, uh, you know, that's 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 right. I mean, a, a science fiction film needs to be also needs to be believable. Uh, so there's always, I think, there is always a certain amount of. Of realism in even in the in the in the science fiction world, and also I I can tell I can tell you I mean we shot the whole you know you, we shot the whole film in in Dallas Texas. It it was mainly because of money because we couldn't afford shooting it in, in different places. I mean so like the the skylines they were. It, would have been maybe more impressive in, in Houston, Texas, and uh, we had, of course, the limitations of of uh, of, uh, of money. That you have that in all films, of course. You know, people were asking, "My God, the cars in that film—they were looking like nowadays cars." And but it's but it's a but it's a science fiction story, uh, fifty or how many years. In, in advance, so the cars would have looked different. Yeah, okay, we could have constructed different cars, but we didn't have the money for that. And so that's why we finally decided, okay, uh, this is, this, the cars are mainly old, old, rundown cars, and we have this this one SU X six thousand or how it how it was called. But but in, I mean, in general, you. Once you say in the film, okay, it's science fiction. It's the cars look sim- still the same. You you don't ask this. I think you, you don't ask this anymore. You know, oh yeah, that's the cars. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Police cars are maybe just looking very similar all over the world. Why should they look different? Did you just make the assumption that the light wouldn't be much different either? Yeah, I I like very much. I must say, I like very much fluorescence, and I work. A lot with fluorescent, and I think this film was shot 90% was lit with fluorescents. Uh, that there is there's a reason for that. I I have a feeling uh, lighting should be part of the architecture of the sets. And when you look at mo- modern architecture, lighting in in reality is is always part of the ar- architecture. Uh-huh. Uh, like look at modern uh, museum buildings or something in the world. It's, it's not a museum and somebody started hanging some lamps somewhere. So this is all integrated. This is all one uh, one, one unit, one, one thing together. And that's why I like very much fluorescence because you can show them. Whatever is lit, but uh, most of, 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 of my lighting instruments you, you can see in the film. Uh, because it's part of that set that needs to be light, uh, practical lights, and the practical lights are when you say at, at that time when you said okay, it's futuristic. Yeah, then would you would say yeah, this should look something like fluorescence. This is a modern style of lighting, and knew, uh, nobody knew about LEDs or something. So this was a, was a good style, and and you could show the lights wherever you, you had had them. You don't have to avoid them, and think this is. 
this is one important thing. And the other important thing, the robot costume should look like a metal surface. Huh? So this shiny, this, 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 this bluish steel colored, whatever metal shine. So, and how, how can you see a, a, a metal surface? You can see it by reflections of lights. And the more reflections of lights you, you have, the more you have a feeling of, of metal. So that's why I sometimes placed lights around Robo, not to light them, just to, just to, uh, to achieve reflections on the surface. So the multiple always is shiny and it's shiny. So whenever something is shiny, it, it needs to shine something, so it needs a light. And when you say you have you have a pinpoint light source or something, yeah, then the reflections on the surface is just a point. But if if you have a something like a fluorescence, then the reflection is not a point. So something, so it's a stripe or something like that. So so you can model the light very nicely with the fluorescence, especially also the the way you use them. Because if you have a a, a, a fluorescence vertically or horizontal, horizontally, it, it makes a, a, it looks very, it looks very different. Like like on a on a face, when you say portrait photo, photography, and you have the fluorescence, and you have it vertically, or you have it uh, horizontally, or you have it angled in a certain angle, you, so you can model the light and the shadows very very nicely. And so that's also why I like this fluorescent. What kind of fluorescent units did you use? Uh, were KinoFlows available at the time? Yeah, yeah, it was KinoFlows. I knew Frieda Hochheim, you know, who who is the inventor of the, of, of the KinoFlows. So I always get some very early examples of, of his. He started working in, in the garage or something, building his first lights. And now he has a huge factory. So, so yeah, I think it was sometimes uh, it's just practical fluorescence or it was KinoFlows. Uh, I mean, he's... He, the, the light source is, is the same as a fluorescent lamp, just that, uh, that, the, that the Kino flows, they have a, a certain, a better spectrum, uh, uh, a better color rendition than, nor- than the normal ones, but that, that doesn't make so much of a difference. And you didn't have to worry about color spikes or strobing or anything like that? No, not at all, not at all. And you know, also, I mean, it's it's easy if you don't mix the lights. The problem arises when you mix the lights because if you just have like uh, you 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 shoot in a in a factory and they have the cheap green spike fluorescence, for instance. So if everything is 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 lit with these fluorescence, then you then uh, uh, in the color grading you can take the, the green out. So that's no problem, as long as you don't use other lights with a different spectrum. So when I'm when I'm shooting like in in in, a, in in this huge one room office building office floors or something you know these things or a supermarket or something and I need additional lights for something to light the, the foreground the faces or the actors or something then I steal some of the of of the fluorescents hanging up there and use them for my lighting. I use exactly the same the same light source, and finally at the end I print I uh, I grade it out the green, and uh, there's no problem at all. You know, if if you use these sort type of lighting, you have some limitations. That's that's, that's always. But if you know what limitations you have, you have to, uh, uh, you have to work with, so then you can avoid it. That's no problem. How sensitive was film stock at the time? 
I try to remember, I, I think it was 200. Shortly before that, it was 100, and I think it was 200. It was not the 500. That, that came, that came, that came much, much later. So you need a different light level, but you, you, but that doesn't affect the, the, the quality of light or the quality of lighting or lighting, light setup or something. You just have uh, bigger instruments or, or smaller instruments. So that was, that was not really, that was not really a problem. We talked a bit about realistic lighting and there are other moments in the movie where the lighting is more expressive and over the top. Yeah, I think for me, this is the only, this is the only example of a real comic book style lighting, you know, with this supernatural huge shadow of a Robocop. So uh, at, at, at the beginning, you, you don't see him first, you just see the, the huge shadow of him. And that's why you get the feeling also these, these, uh, that these guys are really, oh my God, this is something really bigger than life, what's coming up there. Because they just, at the beginning, they just see the, 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 the car lights approaching. So this, but I, I'm, I, in, in general, I must say, the composition is sometimes comic book-like, that's clear. Also, if, if you really watch it, uh, a Robocop is always shot from underneath. It's always shot, shot from, uh, from a low camera angle. You use a low camera angle to make the, your, your your actors or whatever is in front of your camera uh, bigger than life, and and Robocop need needed to be bigger than life because he has a size of of, of a person. He was not not very much taller than than than, 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 than the actor inside, uh, but it needed to be uh, translated in sort of something something bigger than life. So I'm guessing that in the 1980s it didn't really matter what camera you were using. Creative choices more came down to lenses and film stocks. I shot on Kodak, and I used uh, Kodak because of its color uh, saturation, mainly because the film is a little bit drastic. So it's drastic in the story. It's drastic in in the acting. It's drastic in also in a little bit in the lighting and in the composition and in all of that. So it's a little bit over the top the whole thing, and. I'm, I'm, I must tell you, I, all my films in my life I shot with Ari cameras, uh, and it's it's a little bit the way I I grew up with Ari, with Ari cameras. And you know what is a camera? A camera is a lens in front, and there is a the film behind, and there's some machinery in the in between who uh, exposes the film and, and transports the film. So the, the, in general, you, if you use a, a Panavision camera or Audi camera, the images are not different at all. That's my feeling. And lenses, and at that time, now you can choose from uh, uh, Leica and size lenses and Panavision lenses anyway. And, and, and you know, so many different. At that time, uh, I use the, small old size lenses that were the only one that was really well available and that's the way the film looks and, and with other lenses panavision lenses the film wouldn't have looked completely different or something this is uh, but there were, uh, but uh, on the other hand there was no real choice there were no uh, uh, i don't know five or six different brands of lenses with uh, different looking uh, you know this, this was just yeah a lens is a lens and it's sort of it's a, yeah, it translates the scene on, on film, so that's a little bit. It's, it's, it's very simple. 
There's a new RoboCop Blu-ray that I actually haven't seen, but the comparisons between the older transfers and, the, and this new transfer, uh, which I understand uh, was scanned from the original camera negative, look pretty amazing. Were you involved with this or any of the other home video transfers? When the film comes out, I do the grading, I do the timing, everything looks the way it, it was supposed to look. But later on, you know, when there's a new, like there's a new transfer for a Blu-ray, um, the, the, it, it's, it's not my, the production company who produced the film. Most of the time, these companies are not, they are not existing anymore. So, uh, the film went, uh, uh, from a, one distributor to another, and someone bought the, bought the, the rights for a video, and somebody bought the rights for film for Hong Kong, and, and you know, and it, it runs. It's it's sad to say, but it, it runs out of your hand after a while because uh, I hear about oh, there's a new transfer, but that transfer was made was long ago, made long ago. I, I was never asked, and I had no idea that that it was done because it, it was done by other people who had no idea it, uh, was there something in the contract for, uh, in my contract uh, to be part of, of that process or not. Uh, you know, nobody, no, nobody cares about that anymore. Have you seen any of the newer transfers of your films? And do they still look like the films that you shot? I think, I must tell you, I mean, uh, seeing a, a, a film on, on a good Blu-ray, on a, on a good transfer from... Uh, that's sometimes nowadays it's better than seeing the film on film because you know what what is film and they are de decreasing by time they are decreasing by temperature they are decreasing by being run through the projector and uh, when i would like to show this like robocop like to show this film to an audience i would never find any more a, a film print which looks the way it had looked 20 years ago and and if you see it on a on a digital media like 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 on a on a Blu-ray or even on a DVD, of course you can this you can correct this deterioration of uh, of the, uh, the the color structure, for instance. And uh, uh, if if you know, I'm I'm very often I'm teaching in film schools and so on. So so it's 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 better to show a DVD than to find. A film print where always people say, "Oh, this is wonderful! He got a, a real film print." But when you see this film print, it doesn't look any more uh, just similar to what it had looked before 20 years ago. No? So, so it's, it's a loss of culture, can you can say? Uh, and um, how this is a, the, the big problem anyway? How to uh, to save uh, this cultural high standing uh, uh, films? Of, of the past, like you know, the, the black and white films. This is just silver. This is metal on the film. So, and that that holds for decades and, and for centuries. So, the old uh, on the old, even the old silent films or the old films from the past in black and white, they look still the way they had looked at that time. They look very beautiful. But if you see. A, a, a color prints from 20 or 30 years ago, or maybe even 40 years, the, the, the old ones. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame to look at them. So you think it's better to, for films to be digitally remastered, even if it's without the involvement of the filmmakers? It is, it, it is, it is a pity, um, but I must say, yeah, 
That's that's the way I think this is the same when you ask all my uh, all my my big colleagues in, in Hollywood or so they will say the same. Uh, at the beginning, you do the timing, so you have a you have a nice you have a nice print for the opening of the film and for the academy and for whatever whatever else. And then I I, I made a, a sort of a, a high a HD transfer, so like a master, whatever was it HD or was it different, whatever it was sort of a, a very a uh, high standard video master and from that master then later on they made DVDs and they made uh, Blu-rays and, and sometimes sometimes if it's an important film they said okay that master from that time is not good enough anymore so so we do we, we remaster the film and maybe we use the old master uh, to see uh, the colors, the contrasts, and all of that, uh, and, and we have, a, and now we uh, technically we are able to have a, a, a much technically much better transfer. So they transfer it again, and they have all they have the old transfer as as you know as a as a, as a model to look at, and that's all, that's a, the way it looks. But now we have a better, much better technically technical standard, much better resolution or something. So I must say. Whoever is doing the, 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 the transfers, they always have something uh, uh, something to look at. So it's so it's, it's not out of the blue that they do. And at most of the time, when I see later transfers, they will. I personally would say, okay, if I would have been part of that, would have been a little bit different. But in generally, I must say, these transfers are. It's very good people, and they know what they are doing, and so. I mean, if you if you, I mean, if you can kind of cannot change the situation, you you have to live with it in a certain way. So I mean, this is nothing is nobody is perfect, and not, nothing is perfect, and ever everybody has his personal uh, things to look at. So it's yeah. Anyway, I something I uh, what I would like what I have just in my in my little notes. So I I used very own very much short focal lenses. This is something maybe important. Yeah, I have short lenses which give me a a, a forced perspective, which give me a good feeling of the missing third dimension, which is missing on on film, but I think uh, a a strong perspective gives you the feeling of foreground and background and depth of the... And also, I mean, this is... uh, uh, I would say for my... uh, If you have a sort of a comic, like... uh, you can you can say I make a film only always with long long lenses and I just see the faces of my actors and every everything else is way out of focus. I mean this is it's a different approach. You can have a, an approach for a film. Say okay, we do everything with long lenses or with filters or I don't know what what else. So my uh, in this case here, I think always if you are shooting comedies, I think it's very similar. You want to see. Everything you want, you don't want to see one person in in focus and everything out of focus. It's the interaction of of the foreground and the background. It's the interaction of uh, uh, like of of Robocop with its surroundings. So I think also when he 
when he has his nightmare then. So, you know, that's just, you have to see all of its surroundings. So I don't want to avoid things or they don't want to, they want not to say, okay, it's him and it's his, it's his world, it's his, his surroundings. So this is one approach, one of the approaches, beside of uh, that, uh, <coughs> that a fourth perspective also makes him bigger. So, you know, when you said Robocop has to be bigger than life, then it's then it's of course it's not, it's better. You have a short lens, you have a short focal lens, and he in the foreground is very big, and 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 other people a little bit further back they're getting smaller. Like with a long lens, you would say everybody in the foreground in the background has has a similar size, but here the size is Robocop. Robocop is a big size. He is a big man, so he is in the foreground. He is he has a, a big size in frame. And all the others are much smaller, so he's important. He's, he's he has the, the power. This is it's all of that. It's, it's it's just words to this to describe. So that was my approach also with 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 the short lenses. I've got the movie queued up on my computer right now, and you're right. It, it's in nearly every scene, and I've seen this movie. I can't tell you how many times, and never noticed that before today. Yeah, it's always something new. That's just, that's the good thing on, on 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 you know on films on cinema, you cannot see you cannot see everything at, at the uh, at, at the at the first time you see it. You always second time, third time. You always have you oh look at this, look at that. That's just, yeah, that's great. That was Yost Vacano, ASC, talking about his work on the 1987 film RoboCop. Thanks for listening. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.